Today I'm happy to have with me the legendary Motown arranger, David Vandepitt. David, how did it all start for you? Well, as a young man, I began arranging, oh, probably around uh, 11 or 12 years old. I came from a relatively musical family. My mother and father were amateur musicians, but quite good. And uh, I just seemed to get the bug, and I started playing piano. And in the process of studying piano, I, I found piano playing a little boring. Uh, <laughs> I just I couldn't get with it, you know. But I, I noticed that notes on paper seemed to fascinate me a great deal. I found that I started trying to arrange my own notes on paper, you know, which uh, bugged teachers to no end, of course. But I, I don't know, for some reason, I always have been fascinated by physically putting notes on a piece of paper. It sounds silly, but it's true. As I got a little bit older, I started gravitating more and more toward writing and a little less toward playing, and eventually I had to uh, become a player to make a living, of course. But uh, as I got a little bit older, I decided that rather than going to uh, aeronautical engineering school, I was going to go to a music school, which I subsequently did. Then uh, I began to uh, take writing uh, quite seriously. I really uh, lucked up in the sense that uh, I was sitting in Detroit here when uh, Motown Records was going well and got hired there. So uh, that gave me the uh, absolute opportunity I'd been needing to quit playing and become a, an official arranger, at least, you know. So how did you actually get the gig at Motown? Uh, a friend of mine was working there, a fellow by the name of John Trudell, who was a trumpet player here in Detroit, and a very good one at that, uh, had been working for the company for some time, and I was working with John at a club. And he said, you know, David, he said, they're looking for another arranger at Motown. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. He said, would you like to go down? He said, I'll introduce you, and uh, you can interview for the job, you know. I did, and uh, subsequently got the job. And actually, oddly enough, originally I was hired to write uh, what they believed were upcoming movies. Uh, they, they knew they were going to go into the movie business at one point. So they hired me on the basis of that and said, well, gee, maybe you can kind of sit around the arranging department and uh, get a little work here and there, and, you know, when you meet some of the producers and artists and whatnot, and see what you can do, you know. Well, as it turns out, of course, I became uh, an arranger in the arranging department of the record division and never did do a movie, so <laughs> life, is, <laughs> life is strange. <laughs> it sure is. Uh, who was the guy who actually auditioned you there at Motown? Uh, the fellow that was in charge of that process at the time was uh, named uh, Henry Cosby. Henry was sort of uh, head of A&R, et cetera. Uh, well, not quite head of A&R. He, he was sort of uh, head of the arranging department. He uh, oversaw what, you know, the fellows in the department did. So he uh, interviewed me, and I, I don't think I talked to anyone else uh, but him. Well, Motown was known as Barry Gordy's empire. Uh, did you deal with him a lot? No, not at first. Uh, I was there for about five and a half years, and uh, later on in, during my tenure, I did have direct contact with Barry, but by and large, he was sort of a hands-off kind of fellow with the arranging department. He, he just wanted to hear product, finished product. Uh, so we would do what we did, and uh, he would uh, yay or nay it at the Monday morning meeting, you know. And uh, if it was close or something that he thought could be improved, then he might give you a call and say, hey, would you do this, that, or the other thing, and we'll change it and I think it'll be a better product. The, the great thing about him was is that he had an incredible innate sense 
of what the public was looking for. I mean, he just, he was unbelievable. <laughs> he just was marvelous. He, he could pick a hit out of uh, a whole barrel of nonsense, you know, and just, and you'd say, oh, come on, there's no way, you know. <laughs> and sure enough, it would end up being a hit. Uh, so he had a very good read on the public, you know. He, of course, you worked a lot with the great guys down there in the snake pit. Did, were you buddies with them? Did you hang out with them? Did you play with them a lot? No, you know, I knew some of the fellows. Uh, James Jamerson and I were good friends, and uh, Earl and, uh, Van Dyke, uh, the uh, keyboard player, was uh, a good friend of mine, and Joe Messina, the guitar player, uh, one of the guitar players, was a good friend. But I didn't really know the other fellows hardly at all, and when I jumped in there, I, I actually didn't even understand the process because I was coming from a jazz kind of background and the R&B kind of feel was different for me, you know, to, uh, even though it was bluesy and whatnot and what have you, it, it just was a different kind of a feel. So I had to sort of learn as I went along by the seat of my pants and uh, catch up with what everybody was doing there and how many notes were put on paper and how many were understood and implied and uh, it was interesting. It was an interesting process. It was great. Yeah, it must have been. I, I, I'm wondering if you could tell me what it was like to actually be there in the studio working every day. What was your process? Certainly. Uh, in the early days, we were a group of four arrangers, okay? And we serviced somewhere around, uh, hmm, I would say there must have been about 60 different producers. And these 60 different producers, of course, would have their favorite arranger as, you know, you began to know them and work with them and whatnot. There were times when we all were really jammed up with work because it was, it was a tremendously high-volume place for four arrangers to be cranking out all the, all the material that was coming out of that place. So we'd get to a position where I may, for instance, meet with a producer and or artist and they'd have a selection of maybe three or four tunes that they wanted to do. And I would uh, meet with them and put together the rhythm parts, which would be the piano, bass, drums, uh, maybe some percussion, etc. Then they would decide that they would like to do some strings, they would like to do some horns. But when that time came uh, to, uh, to pass, I would be occupied otherwise and couldn't do it. So one of the other arrangers would then take over and do that portion of the, of the record. So there were many times when we would follow through completely with a project, as I did uh, with Marvin, uh, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On project. Uh, that was something I did completely. But there were other times as well where things didn't go that way. I mean, they would, one fellow would do the, the rhythm tracks, and another fellow would do the horn tracks, and another person would do the uh, string tracks, if there were some. It was just sort of um, who was available at the moment. And everybody was very competent, so there was no, you know, real problem there. And who were the other guys that you worked with? The other three arrangers were, uh, of course, uh, Paul Reiser, who was just about the first arranger there after Joe Hunter, I guess. And uh, then Wade Marcus. And um, uh, let me see, who was the fourth fellow? Uh, Willie... Um... Willie Shorter? <laughs> Willie Shorter. Thank you very much. So if you guys all were working on different tracks and sometimes you'd do different things on different tracks, was there kind of an understanding 
among you about what was the Motown sound? Oh, yes, because the idea of the company was that we were looking for a reasonably homogenous kind of a product coming out of there, even though each of the artists was a bit different and this and that. There had to be a certain kind of a standard, you know, uh, that we that we used. And in order to do that, we had to understand each other. We had to understand uh, each other's styles and be able to take over at a moment's notice because there were times when literally... Uh, it sounds silly, but we didn't go home for days at a time. We would literally just catch a catnap uh, in the studio or wherever we could uh, on a cot, you know, because uh, the recording schedule was so heavy. So you had to sort of be uh, ready at a moment's notice to just jump into the breach, you know, and, and take over anyone's uh, project. Uh, so, yes, you're, you're right. We did. We understood each other quite well. And did you guys realize what you were actually creating? I mean, most record companies kind of discouraged doing things that were too different or too far out. But the variety and range of Motown music was enormous. But at the time, did you guys realize that? Oh, my goodness. Well, that, that's, a, that's a great question, actually, because I'd never given it a great deal of thought. Um, I, I could say this, that... Motown was one of the first companies that put unusual kinds of instrumental combinations on pop music. We had an orchestra there that we could play with and do almost anything we wanted. I, I don't ever remember being refused any instrumentation I asked for, no matter how ridiculous it was. Uh, they, they would give anything a try, you know, uh, just to be fresh and different and new and doing something other than what the rest of the folks were doing out in uh, the recording world. So we would go in and ask for things like um, a string session with all cellos and no violas and violins. And nobody would say, gee, are you wacky? You know, I mean, they'd say, well, fine, you know, whatever you need. I can remember having done uh, a recording session with uh, French horns and tenor saxophones. And that was it. <laughs> this was a track that I did with Frank Wilson on the Four Tops. I don't remember the specific track, but um, Frank decided that we were going to try a different kind of an approach and use a bottom-end sound, as he called it, which to him meant uh, low strings and low kinds of horns. And uh, he said, well, what about French horns and, and cellos? And I said, well, that's a gorgeous sound. You know, I said, I have no idea what that has to do with R&B, but we can, <laughs> we can certainly take a whack at it. And as it, as it turned out, it came out very nice. There was another time when I did a Christmas album with the uh, Marvelettes. Smokey Robinson was producing it. And Smokey came to me and said, David, I have this idea. He said, I would like to do a Christmas album, but he said, I want to do it with a legitimate string quartet and rhythm section. And I said, well, gee, Smokey, I, you know, if you can get past Barry with that one, it's fine with me, you know. <laughs> so he said, yeah, well, let's do it. So we did. When uh, We used uh, the standard uh, legitimate uh, woodwind quintetics and uh, uh, rhythm section, and it came out really neat. It was fun. And the uh, players had a lot of fun playing it, too. So uh, I guess uh, it boils down to the fact that we were allowed an awful lot of room for experimentation. And because of that, we got to use a lot of strings and horns that other people weren't necessarily using at the time. And I think that was one of the prime or differences in the Motown music. Uh, their ability or willingness, rather, I should say, to, to allow us to try different things, you know. Sure. Um, so in... 
the normal world budget sort of controls how many instruments you get. What was your normal size string section? Our standard string section was approximately 17 strings. We used, let me see, I think it was nine violins, uh, I think it was three violas, three cellos, and a harp, and sometimes we'd augment that slightly, you know, to uh, to beef it up a bit. But by and large, that was all we really needed because uh, the R&B strings, you know, uh, you didn't need a whole lot of strings on, on those kinds of records to, uh, to make them hurt and uh, make them effective, you know. Sure. And I guess, of course, everything depended on what record you were making that day. Yeah, that certainly did vary uh, project by project. And quite honestly, uh, a lot of the producers had their own pet little groups that they liked to use, you know, a particular sound or what have you. But we'd use anywhere from uh, like uh, two trumpets and a trombone and a couple of saxophones on up to uh, four trumpets, four trombones, uh, five saxophones, you know, whatever, whatever it took. And we'd use French horns quite a bit. Uh, we used a lot of woodwinds, and I think that was another thing that was distinctive about the Motown sound, if you will, and that was the fact that we used a lot of piccolo and flute and oboe, doubling strings, things like that, and it gave it a different sound than you know what other folks were doing at the time. So how much input would you actually get from the producers themselves? Uh, it, that would depend, again, on the producer. We had, as you can imagine, we had a wide range of people there. There were people who were totally, I would say, musically illiterate, you know. I mean, they really, really didn't know much of anything about music. They knew what they liked, and they knew what, how to put things together, but they had no way to converse with you or tell you what they were really looking for. And then we had other people who were really quite proficient musicians, etc., and so it ran the gamut. There were times when people would come to you and say, uh, I, I need strings on this. And you would hear the song, and you would say, "Nah, you really don't. I mean, this is not a string. You might use a little brass here or there. And they would say, oh, okay. You know, and they'd sort of just leave it up to you. Uh, there were other times when people would come to me with specific instrumentations in mind, you know, and say, like a Frank Wilson, for instance, who was quite specific. And he'd say, I want this. I want a contrabassoon. You know, I want something, you know, whatever. And he, he had a game plan in mind. Uh, like on the Stillwaters Run Deep album that I did with Frank Wilson, which was a Four Tops album, that album, we, we used some different kinds of instrumentation than we normally would have. Uh, nothing spectacular, but just a little different. And Frank had everything all sort of mapped out in his mind as to what kind of a sound he was looking for. But there were other times when people would come to you and you, you, they, they would have no clue as to what they were really looking for. Uh, they would say they would like it to sound like, you know, and they would give you another record maybe or something that, can you make it sound like this? And your clue was, of course, that particular record. And you'd say, well, there are strings on there, there's some brass on there or whatever have you, and uh, you'd go from there. But it was quite interesting. There was a time when Frank Wilson called me late of an evening and said, gee, David, you got to come over to the house. And I, I said, gee, Frank, it's really late. you know. <laughs> he said, ah, come on, you, this is interesting. So I, I went over to the house, and he introduced me to a young man who was about 16 years old. And he said, this young man has a song he's going to play for you. And the fellow picked up a guitar, and I promise you, I, the guitar had two strings on it, the low E and the low A. And he started playing these two strings, and he was playing open fifths and things like that and whatever have you and some thirds or whatever he could get his hands on. He was humming this song, and Frank said, you know, I said, I know there's something in this song. I said, well, yeah, I'm sure there is, Frank, but I have no clue whether this guy is in a major key, a minor key. Or minor, you know, I really don't know. <laughs> and so we kind of sussed it out and worked with it, and it turned out to be Stone Love, which was a hit for the Supremes.
but it it just came off of a, a two-string guitar to, from a, a young man who could barely play, you know. <laughs> so you never looked uh, at anything as being totally ridiculous. You had to really take a good look at everything because you never knew where the next hit was coming from. No, but of course, I've been in situations like that before myself, and I know how tricky it can be. How did you actually work it out with the kid? Yes, that particular evening was very interesting because I, what I did was we, we recorded it on just a cassette recorder, and then what I did was play it back and play chords on the piano for the young man until I hit a chord that he thought was the right chord that he really meant to play but didn't have enough strength to deal with. <laughs> and it was chord by chord by chord until we finally hung together a verse and then hung together the chorus, you know, and then, of course, they're quite repetitive, so once you get most of it together, the rest of it sort of falls in place and that uh, you're absolutely right it was like pulling teeth quite frankly but it was interesting can you tell me something about which producers you really enjoyed working with and why oh gee I had quite a few Frank Wilson was one of them I, I have mentioned him several times and he I mean he was really a an open-minded uh, musical kind of fellow and that's what I liked about him he uh, really really was sort of open-minded to anything you could possibly come up with and he, he gave me an awful lot of musical freedom he didn't uh, tie my hands very much he he, he was quite uh, good about that Marvin was good to work with. I enjoyed working with Marvin. He was a lot of fun to work with. Smokey was fun to work with. There were several. Uh, I, I would I would say offhand, probably Frank Wilson uh, was probably my favorite guy, simply because uh, we did a lot of musical stuff together, and it was always different with Frank. It was never uh, a great deal of repetition. You know, he was always looking to be on the cutting edge and trying something new, and uh, it, it was fun. It was really enjoyable. Fun indeed, but um, how were you actually paid? I mean, it was by the song, by the hour, by the day. What was it? It was piecework. It was absolutely piecework. It was paid by the by the song, by the by. Actually, it was broken down because of the way we worked, as I described earlier, where I might do the rhythm parts and someone else might do the strings and someone else again might do the horn parts. It was broken down to where we got paid by doing a rhythm arrangement and then a horn arrangement. Uh, and then a string arrangement. And if you were lucky enough to have done all three, then you got all three parts of the paycheck. But if you hadn't, then it was divvied up according to uh, who had done what, you know? And there was no kind of retainer at all? No, there really wasn't. It was just strictly piecework. That's all it was. And uh, you had to work to, to get your paycheck. So even though you were on call the whole time, 24-7, you didn't get paid if you didn't work. Absolutely. You got it. That's exactly what happened. It was very interesting. <laughs> there were a few days of twiddling thumbs in the early days, but <laughs> not so many. So you guys were contributing to some of the biggest hits of the period, and yet there was no retainer while you were working, and also you got no royalties for any of the work that you'd done, sometimes contributing important melodies and hooks for the songs? No, absolutely not. The only thing that we can uh, say is that when the music is used other than in the context of a record, in other words, if the recording is used in a movie or if it's used for a TV program or something, we do get compensated for that. It's called the new use provision, and that is accommodated by the union. But other than that, no, there are no royalties or anything like that involved. So it was just piecework and uh, good luck to you. you know. <laughs> and, of course, it's generated an awful lot of funds over the years, as you well know. Some of the fellows were fortunate enough to uh, have uh, their names 
names included as songwriters, in which case they were paid songwriter royalty over the years. But uh, that didn't happen very, very often. No. Um, it seems to me that, on the one hand, it was great to be getting paid and being able to pay your rent and stuff like that. But on the other hand, you guys were contributing a very important part of the Motown sound, which was generating millions of dollars. And yet, when the job is over, you really uh, were not benefiting as the producers and songwriters and artists were uh, in any extent. So didn't that kind of piss you off? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. It's... Um... It's an interesting business, our business of being an arranger. It's basically thankless and anonymous, and <laughs> it's a very service-oriented profession, uh, you know, in which uh, most uh, most times others take credit for what you've done, you know. Um, there are any number of times, I, I would say, over the years where the situation that you've just described uh, uh, has arose, in which... Uh, people walk in with maybe a basic chord sheet and uh, humming a tune. You put the whole thing together, and you're still just the arranger. You're not a producer. You're just an arranger. And I don't understand what that is unless it's an ego problem or something like that, uh, because I, I feel that a person who contributes should certainly uh, get his fair share of the credit at least. How many times uh, have you ever walked into a session and turned a piece of bad music into something probably saleable and maybe even great and had somebody turn around and say, gee, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce the fellow who saved this piece of music for me. <laughs> you know, it doesn't happen. <laughs> no way. Yep. Uh, and I don't understand that. I truly don't understand that. Uh, I, I don't have a problem with giving other people the credit that they're due, and I don't see why uh, some other folks do, you know? Well, now, you were the first Motown arranger to ever get a prominent credit on a Motown album with Marvin Gaye, where it actually said, conducted and arranged by David Vandepitt. How did that happen? Well, uh, Marvin, actually it was Marvin's doing, because uh, Marvin decided that he was he was in a as you know a bit of a dispute with the company at that point in time in terms of contractual negotiations etc and uh, he was determined that he was going to do the album that he'd always wanted to do and the company of course wasn't buying it and uh, he he just said well look I'm going to do this album and uh, I want it to go my way and well part of it going his way was that I got credit on the albums now that was an unheard of thing uh, and particularly listing musicians on the recording uh, jacket, which the original jacket did. The reason being that Barry Gordy had a thing about anybody finding out who it was that actually worked for Motown because he was afraid that we would be spirited away in the night by some other company and, uh, you know, hired away, as so to speak. And so he uh, really didn't want our names out there. But Marvin did end up getting his way. And uh, I got uh, front cover credits, which is the first time that had happened. Uh, and it was quite interesting. Not only interesting, but I might say deserved. Well, thank you for that. But <laughs> it was quite interesting. Uh, uh, most of the other work, as you well know, was pretty anonymous. Uh, there, there were times when names went on 45s and singles and things like that. But by and large, it was quite, uh, quite anonymous. Yeah, and because of that, it's very difficult for people who are interested to know who did what. 
Yes, that you're right. And, you know, I have to be honest and tell you that it's quite hard for us to remember who did what record as well. Uh, we didn't keep any records at the time of who did what necessarily, you know. Uh, certain things do stick out in your mind you remember having done, but other things you don't remember whether you did them or you didn't do them. And it gets confusing. Well, because you actually did get credit for the work you did with Marvin, can you tell us something about your working process with him? How did you get on? How did you relate to each other? How did it all happen? Yes, I can. Um, Marvin, whom I worked with uh, only a little, uh, not a great deal, called one of the A&R directors, I guess, and said he specifically wanted me to work on this project with him. And I said, well, okay, fine, whatever. You know, I had no idea what the project was, of course. And uh, I went over to Marvin's home and met with him. And he laid out this whole concept for this album that he had in mind. And he told me, he said, I've got all the music written, it's all ready to go, and, you know, off we go. Well, as it turns out, in fact, the music wasn't written. Uh, the tunes weren't finished. Uh, some of them hadn't even been conceived yet, but we, we started wading into the project anyway. And as we got into it, I thought to myself, you know, this is not Motown, you know, per se. There's, there's something different going on here. And I brought that up to Marvin several times. I said, are you sure about this? And he said, absolutely sure. I said, I think we're going to have problems getting this album released. You know, I mean, this is just not uh, Motown fair. Uh, and he said, uh, well, it's going to be. You know, he was really adamant about it. So we continued to work. And he had a concept of what he wanted to do. But he had no idea of, like, instrumentation, and uh, so we had to hash all of that out. And he would say, well, I have an idea of a sound in my mind, and what can make this sound, or what does make this sound, you know? And uh, we, we just started going through that process, instrument by instrument, and tune by tune by tune. And uh, eventually got to the point where we had the majority of the album finished. And then he said, you know, he said, there, we need some kind of continuity for this album. I, I'd, I'd like it to flow, you know, one tune into the next. And I said, well, how about if we make some musical bridges, you know, to hook the songs together? And he said, uh, well, that's, you know, that's a great idea, but how will we do that? And I said, well, you know, we'll, we'll tack a piece of the next song on the previous tune, et cetera, et cetera, and then you'll just have to splice them together in the studio, and I'm sure it'll all work out. And so the story seems to be going around that the engineers themselves mixed the, some kind of outtakes or something and stuck them in and bridged these things together. But, of course, that's absolutely wrong, and they were pre-designed to to be hung together and, and uh, you know, cut and hooked together. When we had gotten the all the material done, we went in and started recording. And even the musicians, uh, Marvin decided that he wanted to use some other musicians than uh, those that were normally uh, there just to try and get a different sound. And uh, when we got into the studio, the musicians were flabbergasted because they couldn't believe that he was actually recording this music. It, it was just so different from what they had been doing, you know, on a daily basis. But uh, everybody got into it because of the jazz feels and everything, and uh, it obviously came off fairly well. And um, So the choice of musicians, was that something you did together? Yeah, pretty, pretty much. He knew he wanted to use Jamerson. Uh, he wanted to use Bob Babbitt to play bass. And he knew that uh, he wanted to use uh, Robert White and uh, I think it was Eddie Willis or Joe Messina. And um, then he asked about a drummer, and I recommended a fellow... Uh, named Chet Forrest, who was a fine drummer from Detroit here. 
then he would recommend someone and so on. You know, I mean, he was sort of handpicking musicians sort of to, to, to go along with the feel of the album, you know. As it turns out, the, the selection was really terrific. It really worked out very nicely. The guys got into it. You know, they really got into the project. So it sounds like all the strings and brass were overdubs, right? Yes. Now, in this particular case, we cut all the rhythm tracks first, and then we overdubbed the brass and uh, then uh, finally the strings. Then at the very end, when everything was all finished, that's when the tunes were actually cut together so that they flowed from one to the next, the first few tunes. So did you write your charts based on the rhythm sections that were recorded? No, this particular case, everything was written before we ever went into uh, cut tracks at all. The whole album was written and ready to go when we started recording uh, rhythm tracks. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why it turned out so brilliantly, because you conceived it from the very beginning as a whole musical piece so you could say to the rhythm section no we'd like to go there or there based on what you knew that the entire chart was going to be and it became the classic track that it is because of the work that you did right from the beginning well thank you for that yes and as a matter of fact it it was one of the only times down there that that was done because quite frankly most of the time it was done after the fact after even maybe a ghost vocal track was put on or something a demo vocal track uh then we would consider strings and horns you know so uh, yes it was one of the only times that it was done in my experience down there for sure and when were the backing vocals done i think that was just either between the um, brass and string sessions or maybe just after the string session when the thing was fairly complete. And in this particular case, I had nothing to do with the background vocals whatsoever. Uh, Marvin just went in and decided he was going to do that himself. So that's what he did. Of course, the, uh, the, the famous double voice story is, is incredible because it, it was going on that that was a pre-planned thing. And of course, it was just a happy accident uh, that one evening an engineer by the name of Ken Sands was working with Marvin. And uh, it got to be quite early in the morning and Ken was very tired and Marvin was done singing. And he said, gee, so which vocal do you think I should use, this one or that one? And Ken said, let me do this for you. He said, let me make you a copy and I'll make you a stereo copy and I'll put one voice on one channel and I'll put the other voice on the other channel and when you get home you can just turn off either channel you know and hear the two voices and see what you like and as it, as they were playing it back of course they heard the two voices together and Marvin said god that's great <laughs> let's go with it you know so that's what that's how that came about very interesting you know sometimes things come from nowhere you just <laughs> they're totally unplanned for now, now, sometimes when I've done orchestral work, the producer asks me to come along to the mixes to check what they've done, that everything's okay. Did that happen with you? Uh, to some degree, yes, but not a great deal. Uh, there was a rule at the company. Uh, <laughs> the arrangers, believe it or not, were not allowed to be in on any mixes. I never could establish exactly why that rule was uh, established, but I have a sneaking suspicion that it was because uh, as they were mixing, they would tend to want to bury things and hide things, and uh, if something was too loud turn it down and of course uh, an arranger would be in there saying oh please I've got to hear my strings or I've got to hear my horns or what have you you know so they decided to curtail that and just uh, bar all the arrangers from mixing sessions <laughs> those pesky arrangers <laughs> 
Now, let's get it on. That seems like, I mean, I don't know that much about it, but it seems like it was a very different experience for you. Yeah, well, the, the Let's Get It On project per se, uh, I had very little to do with, except uh, I guess you'd call it the B side of the record. There's about four cuts on there that were originally done for the group called The Originals. Uh, Marvin and I recorded them for The Originals. And Marvin went out to the West Coast and was living out there and decided to do another album. Did not include me in the process, but did put those four songs with his own voice, of course, uh, having been overdubbed, on the B-side of the album. And uh, I found out after the fact, of course, that Let's Get It On was, was done and uh, didn't quite understand the process until later on when I was told that Marvin suspected me of, uh, how would I say it, uh, being a little too musical for his taste. He was afraid that what I was going to do was take over his credits or something like that. It, it was uh, a little bit paranoid in my estimation, but uh, while we liked each other, apparently he disliked me uh, to some degree, and I never knew about it till after the fact, you know. Well, Interesting. Well, now this has happened to me before, so I'm going to ask you, do you think the fact that you got credit for what's going on and people then started saying, yeah, Marvin, great record, and wow, those arrangements, so that you were getting some compliments for that, do you think that's why he was later quoted in the David Ritz book saying, well, I never wanted him to have credit in the first place? Yeah, because he was purporting the theory that, uh, as and I believe he states some someone, and I'll paraphrase out of that same book, every note of this album was in my head. I just needed to get it on paper or something to that effect, you know, which, was, of course, was silly. Uh, because when I showed up, not not all the tunes were even finished, you know. So I mean, <laughs> that's an impossibility. And I think maybe being nominated for a Grammy didn't uh, <laughs> didn't help too much. <laughs> uh, when sometimes when you're dealing with egos, it's difficult, you know. I don't I don't have a problem with that, but other folks seem to. Yeah, well, I've spoken to a lot of arrangers on this project, and they all agree that we need the skills of harmony, counterpoint, and diplomacy. Yes. I think that, boy, have you hit it on the head. I, th I think that an arranger is 99.9% .9 diplomat. <laughs> and uh, the rest uh, may be musician, but uh, honestly, you're absolutely right. Diplomacy is, God, it's one of the, the biggest things in our trade. You really have to, in order to get to understand what people are looking for and what kind of product, uh, end product they're looking for, you really have to be able to get into their heads a little bit and understand, in many times in non-musical terms, because they're not musical people necessarily, what they're trying to accomplish. And you learn the diplomatic approach very early on, trying to be as diplomatic as possible in order to obtain information that you can use to enhance the final product, you know, and get as close to what they were looking for as possible. As an arranger, as you well know, uh, you're, you're diplomatic to producers, uh, to various and sundry company officials. You're also diplomatic to musicians because you depend on them to recreate your uh, notes on paper for you. And nothing would be worse than to have uh, a room full of angry musicians out of uh, which you're trying to get a product. You know, that's the silliest thing I can think of. So you definitely want to be a diplomat, absolutely. 
And you can't afford to offend too many clients because we don't have that many. <laughs> there aren't any. <laughs> They've gone away. <laughs> Can you give some example, perhaps, of a rather emotional moment in the studio or a difficult moment in the studio that you were able to diffuse? Oh, my. There, there have been many over the years. Uh, to, to cite one specifically might be a little bit difficult at a moment's notice, but I can remember times down at uh, Motown when the musicians would have been there uh, recording a particular tune for some producer who was not really very, maybe not very musical at all, I guess would be the fair thing to say. And they would sit there and require a take after take after take of the same tune and never explain to the musicians why it was that they were doing another take. And if you if you say, gee, you know, the guitar was out of tune, everyone understands that, and they're happy to do another take because the guitar was out of tune, or possibly you can, like we do today, we can just overdub the guitar and fix it. But when you constantly say, well, that was okay, but would you do another take for me? Well, Why? If it was okay, why are we doing another take? You know, and it, it, the tempers would start to boil. <laughs> it was a small room with a lot of people in it. <laughs> and I've seen Jameson actually put his bass down and just storm out, you know, come back a few minutes later and say, okay, we got this all together now. Can we make a take? Because he knew that we had to take uh, maybe take three or take two. And here we are at take 41, you know. <laughs> So, I mean, that kind of thing went on constantly. Oh, I, I never saw it ever come to uh, any serious fisticuffs or anything, but it got out of hand, you know. <laughs> now, going back to the Let's Get It On album, you've got writing credit on four tracks, three of which are on the deluxe edition that's been released. Yes. None of which were finished. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about working on that album? Ah, yes. Now... What you're referring to is not the Let's Get It On album, but that was an additional album that Marvin and I did that was never released uh, until um, just recently. A few of the tracks, as you're pointing out, uh, had been released. Uh, The reason being that they were never completed. But what happened was is that after the Let's Get It On album, I got a call from the company off the, uh, out of the West Coast here in uh, the States, and they said, please come out to California and do another album with Marvin. We need another album from Marvin, blah, blah. And I said, well, quite frankly, I don't think Marvin wants to work with me. I mean, he's obviously gone on to other things. He's done another album in between, and he's worked with someone else. So uh, I don't know how this will work. And they said, well, frankly, we don't care how it works, just <laughs> come out and do it. <laughs> and, you know, we'll worry about putting it together later. Okay. So I ended up going to the West Coast, and we sat and talked for a little while, Marvin and I, and I said, well, Marvin, what's the deal? And he said, well, they are requiring me to do an album, and I don't really want to do it, but I guess I'm going to have to. And I said, well, not, you know, let's put a good face on it, and let's try to do a really nice product. You know, we did one, we can do another. So we sat and literally composed the thing together in this particular case. It was uh, at some, he was staying at some motel somewhere, and we got a little portable piano, and uh, he and I sat there and banged on the piano and traded ideas and came up with a concept and uh, what have you and started writing tunes. And uh, got to the point where we went in and recorded the rhythm tracks. Then I, I don't remember exactly, I think there were about eight tunes that were recorded. I, I not positive of that, but I think it was about eight tunes. 
and then uh, I put uh, strings and horns on them and some percussion, and all of a sudden Marvin disappeared, and it was not to be found. And the company didn't know where he was, and uh, everybody was out scouring the countryside looking for Marvin, who, as it turns out, had rented a, a camping vehicle and gone out into the desert or something, and uh, I don't know, some bizarre thing, and just got lost. You know, I mean, he just uh, didn't want to be bothered and didn't want to finish the project. Well, that that was really a bad deal because here I was not only co-writer but co-producer of an album that was never going to be finished, <laughs> which really, really, really made me angry. <laughs> so I stormed into the company and I said, what in the world are we going to do about this? You know, uh, we can't put a gun to the guy's head and force him to come and sing this stuff, you know. I mean, but yet the album is virtually done. All he has to do is show up and sing and put some backgrounds, you know, in and things like that. I mean, it was, but the, the bulk of the work was done. Well, it, it was never finished. Uh, it, and uh, I guess from what I find out now, because of the re-release, he had gone in and experimented with some vocals on some of the stuff. And that was unbeknownst to me, because I was back uh, on the East Coast again and uh, had no idea that he was even involved in the project. I assumed it was sitting on a shelf somewhere collecting dust, you know. Our dear friend uh, Harry Wangert found the stuff and called me one day and said, uh, guess what I found? And I said, uh, what would that be? And Harry said, I found these tracks that Marvin was working on, and I understand you had something to do with. He said, and when I listened to him, he said, it sounds like you all over the place. So uh, I said, oh, my God, Harry, you found the lost album, <laughs> which indeed he had. Uh, I had been telling people for years that we had done another album, and of course they said, uh, yeah, right, sure you did, because it never saw the light of day, and no one could imagine that there would be a Marvin Gaye album sitting in a can somewhere, never seeing the light of day. Uh, he was too marketable, you know. Yeah, well, the fact that you can laugh at it now shows what a grand fellow you really are. Well, thank you. Especially since you're quoted on the record as saying this is some of your best work ever. Indeed. And from those three tracks, we get a tantalizing glimpse of that work. Yes. Have you ever been tempted to go in the studio and finish them? Well, uh, not that I'm aware of. I, I don't know. Uh, I'd like to talk to Harry Wangert about that one day and see if maybe something couldn't be done along those lines. I don't know what could be, but uh, there may be something. It would be an interesting idea. Now, in a situation like that, you as the producer or arranger are completely at the mercy of the personality of the artist, which in this case was not exactly totally what might be called stable. So my question is, do you think that it's the record company's fault here by giving too much control to a personality like that? Well, yes, I, I think that that's, that could be part of the problem. Um, in this particular case, in speaking of Marvin particularly, he he was looking for control only because he had not ever had any control over what he uh, ultimately wanted to do and perform. Uh, and he'd been dictated to by for so long that I think he just got fed up with it and said, darn it, I, you know, let me do my own thing for once. You know, just give me a break here, you know. He never wanted to be a teeny bopper kind of singer. He wanted to be a more serious kind of a singer, and they, he just wasn't really given the the chance that he wanted to do whatever it was that he dreamed he should be doing, you know. And by by sort of giving him that much control, 
I think that they've kind of lost the ball. They kind of dropped the ball on the one hand. Uh, on the other hand, I felt that he should have more control, only because he had really something to say that they, uh, you know, they may not have been particularly interested in listening to, but they should have at least given him the chance. You know, if if they had put something on record and then said, well, Marvin, you know, quite reasonably, this will not sell. This is not a marketable product, or or some such argument, you know, that was reasonable. He probably would have listened to them. But uh, with it relative to my position, I thought that at this point in time, being co-producer and co-songwriter on this particular album would give me some kind of clout, of course. And uh, as it ends up, uh, it didn't. <laughs> so who knows? Well, it was a tragedy, of course, in some ways. But there are still people like myself who recognize your work and are big fans. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, we're going to have to sadly wrap it up right now, but thank you so much for, for talking to us today. Excellent, Richard. Well, it was a, an extreme pleasure, and I thank you for taking the time. It was wonderful. I enjoyed it very, very much. Well, so did I, and I can only close by saying, most respectfully, Dave, you the man. Why, thank you, Richard, very much, and thanks again for the album. I do appreciate it and love it. Absolutely, and thank you very, very much. Right. Bye-bye now.